Welcome to the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast. I'm your host, Owen Scott Muir, MD. Nothing particularly significant or important. It wasn't uh, terribly dramatic. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs therapy. Lying down on the couch. That's crazy when we've got effective interventions at our disposal. What does that mean? Artifact sizes, empirical questions answered left and right. A lot of psychedelics became All night. A lot of the psychedelics became illegal. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Life is rubbish. For all of Welcome to the show. The frontier psychiatrist. Let's go. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs therapy. All that's going on here is that these people do not have a language for talking about their thoughts and their feelings. And as soon as they start talking about their thoughts and their feelings, they don't have to do crazy things. They don't have to do crazy things. I'm Chuck DeSmith, and I'm a deputy chief in the fire department in Renton, Washington. I've got 34 years, and I really enjoy caring for our members and exploring all things. My name's Owen Muir, MD. I'm a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, and I've gotten to get to know Chuck over the course of the last year at least, and thrilled to have a conversation about uh, whatever it will turn out to be, which we get to edit that bit out later. Uh, how'd, you, how'd you become a, a, a firefighter? Back in 1987, and I was just, I went to college for a couple of years and I enjoy team activities. And for some reason, I was that kid that liked to look out for others. I didn't like alcohol, had some bad experiences. And so I would be that person at a party that is watching and, and seeing if everyone's going to get home okay. And so shockingly a, good preparation for yeah, the current day. It wasn't a surprise when I went towards this career. Some people have a dramatic story. I really don't. I was driving by a fire station and I just finished two years of community college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I watched and they were, there was a group of firefighters hosing off a fire engine and they were just washing it. And then I could see they were starting to spray each other and they were just having a lot of fun. And I think, huh, that looks like fun. And then I, I took off. Yeah, I just started pursuing it and then became a firefighter later that year. That's been my path since. I, I relate to that a lot. I like teamwork. It's the fun part for, of any job. And for me, I my first line of work was as a recording engineer at Sony Music Studios. And what I liked about that gig was because it was 100% working together to make something magic that you can't make on your own. And the parts that were lonely, I didn't like. And the parts that were teamwork, I did. And those moments where you can help someone realize they're for a recording artist, you can get them into the headspace to make the, say the thing in the way that was the magic. Mm -hmm. And so it was lower tier helping maybe, but it was like, do you need a Jamaican beef patty? <laughs> 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 Let me make, I, I remember like my big win was, it, you know, I worked the overnight shift a lot. Because at Sony back in the day in New York, they'd roll in at 6, and that's when the workday would start, 6 p.m. And getting Chris Stahl at 2 a.m., I actually recently reconnected with the person who used to run the Hit Factory down the street. 
Wow. And it was a weekend. It was 2 a.m. There were no liquor stores open in New York. I've never had a drink in my life, so I'm totally out of luck. And somebody wanted Cristal. <laughs> I think it may have been Lil' Kim or some, was one of her crew. And I literally, two weeks ago, I was at dinner with someone who used to be the guy at Hit Factory who made sure that we had their number so that if they had Cristal, they could hook us up. <laughs> and that's when it happened like 25 years ago. Oh my gosh. So you saw something that looked fun and teamworky and then you did it, it sounds like. Yeah. What was what when what is training like then and maybe how is it different from now for firefighters? Because we hear firefighter and we think fire and fighting it, but I'm guessing the vast majority of what firefighters do is not necessarily hose on fire. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I feel fortunate that I grew up in in this area of the nation. So in the 80s, King County was some of the first that was able to take hospital procedures and put them onto the street. So we were some of the first that firefighters started using a very crude defibrillators and CPR. And so King County, Washington always became the area, hey, if you're going to have a heart attack, have it in King County because it's a full system where we're very aggressive with training the public in CPR. You have highly trained fire and paramedics and a hospital system that will get you the help you need. And so we were known not only throughout the nation, but internationally as some of the best CPR out of hospital resuscitation rates. So EMS is a huge part of it, uh, emergency medical service. And so, yeah, we would, they would send us off to a mini boot camp because it is a paramilitary type organization. And so they put us out for eight weeks of fighting fire. But then we'd go through what was called an EMT course, emergency medical training. And that's where we would dive in because that is about 75% of our work is the medical side. Mm -hmm. And I actually taught the paramedic class on behavioral health at the largest EMT school in the country at Northwell for a couple of years. And right. what struck me is I had, I used to work as an emergency psychiatry attending in the ER at Northwell and later at, at Bellevue and other places. And EMTs have become an end. Our, our colleagues in the field who, you know, were dealing with very unwell people in the wild and trying to be helpful. Um, how much of the medical stuff did you get? And, and you know, how much I told, I made this comment the other day, EDP to somebody, emotionally disturbed person, right? How, did you get any of that in the beginning <laughs> back Way back when, and, and how much of it do you, do you get now? We actually have data on this that I could share with you. But in the 80s, and especially the early 90s, people called 911 for uh, true emergencies, really. They've cut off their arm. Their house is on fire. Uh, these major car accident before airbags and everything else, seatbelts even, it's changed quite a bit. So the, the definition of who is using 911 for what? We've become very much a doctor service that's a free 24-hour. It's a, a simple three-digit number. You talk to a human, and humans show up to meet you in your moment of crisis wherever you are, 24 hours a day, and they get there fast. Of course, it was a system that we didn't really have to sell too hard, and now it's being used very much so in, in so many different capacities. But behavioral health in the last six years has dramatically increased. And those are 
where police actually had to take a step back also. Fire had to step in and fill those gaps after a lot of post-COVID with a lot of the movements where police officers incorrectly handling a situation. It was suddenly thrust on fire who were not trained either. Mm-hmm. That has really hit us hard. And so, like, I'm a psychiatrist for a living, uh, and I still, like, I'm basically winging it, right? Um, yeah, I have a lot of experience <laughs> winging it in, in a crisis. Yeah. But the reason everyone is winging it is because if you're having a, a problem with your brain, first off, there could be some medical problem and we don't even know. And second, definitionally, your experience of what's wrong and the experience of anybody else are likely to be misaligned. So my behavioral health crisis, where my behavior is out of line, right? I will mm-hmm. just define it that way. And somebody else's experience of what the hell is wrong or what to say or do we're not sharing the same information like we might, oh, there's a fire, the fire's there, see it, yep, it's on fire, we agree, now let's not burn to death. Easy agreement, which is different if the fires are all only in one of the people's minds, to give an example. How would you ideally prepare anyone to walk into that in your mind? Versus, but it seems like we're all scrambling to catch up with the truth, which is that people are distressed and struggling for reasons that we don't have immediate access to. Oh, and in our nature, we're fixers. We like to see a problem. We like to see a fire and put it out. We like to cut you out of the car. If you're bleeding, we want to stop the bleeding. We're very transactional that way. And then we go back in service and do it again. That's a lot of times how we're drawn to the, to be able to finish the shift and feel like I did something. But we know, especially with behavioral health, This is a chronic need that will not be solved with one visit. This has been a real growth area that we've had to train for because in our haste to fix them, if they're running naked down the middle of the street, they feel like they're on fire or someone's chasing them. And we try to control the situation. Very similar, like a police officer wants to control and somehow mitigate a a hazard. Fire is a little bit softer. But you have to really change your approach and change and, and almost appreciate what they're going through and not try to speed it up or to control or fix them. But you're trying to, at least at the bare minimum, de-escalate so you can talk them into getting some help and find out what they need. And they don't always align. It's difficult. <laughs> I'm curious, can you, assuming I was having a, a crisis, can you just talk to me like you would advise a young firefighter to talk to someone? Let's just say we ran to each other on the street. It's today we were supposed to do the podcast and I'm upset. A little role play for a minute. Chuck, I don't know what to do. I would first advise a person is just their body positioning, I think is everything. A lot of times we feel so like- before, before there's even a word, you're thinking about how you're standing. Yeah. How we approach people because- We come out very authoritative, and this is evident in people who have immigrated here or coming from another country where someone in uniform even is already has a hostile approach. So we're thinking about how we're approaching our body stance, how we're standing, kneeling, meeting someone where their eye gaze is instead of crossing the arms, looking down. So most of them are taught just even they approach It's very slow. They like to see hands, what we're carrying. If they're sitting down, holding their head and their hands on the curb, 
Are we kneeling down and talking with them? We used to call it, it sounds a little creepy. We used to call it bedside manner. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I'm a doctor. We're still into that. There you go. It's really, it's funny for me to hear because that's very much what I did in emergency settings. And, And my colleagues would look at me in some cases like, but you just sat on the floor next to the kid who was just about to be in restraints. They could have killed you. I'm like, yeah, but now they talk to me. <laughs> and so the first advice isn't what you say. It's how you physically enter someone's space in a way before you said any words. So you would get at my eye level essentially and say, show me. This includes, yeah, this includes decreasing the sensory. So we arrive in a, could be a fire truck with bright lights, strobes, mm-hmm. loud idling engine is to shut things down, mm-hmm. decrease the stimulation of everything happening. And just to have that attitude of how we present and then slow down. Are you sure you're not child psychiatrist? <laughs> <laughs> slow down. And, and you're there to listen and, at, at first because we can't control this situation. You're there to listen and to basically ask them, I'm here to help. If you need some help, I'm here. And so to give them a little control, if they're feeling out of control, I want to make sure just to feel like I'm not going to control you at all. I'm going to sit down. I may not even say anything. I may just let it take a minute, but you can ask, is there anything I can help you with? Or you come at it of a a possible area of what can I do for you instead of, I need to get you somewhere. Mm -hmm. I get you out of this element because people are freaking out. You're not, you don't have your clothes on, Mm -hmm. something bad. You ask them, is there something that's going on that I can help you with? Would you like to go anywhere? Is there someone you'd like to also talk to? Are you cold? Are you hungry? You start thinking of those Maslow's basic hierarchy of needs. Do you have some of those right now mm-hmm. that help with? Before I, I'm even getting into thinking of what can I do to help the situation, you start yeah. asking basic needs. Now, is this that sounds so sensible. I'm wondering if some of the reason police stepping back may be a, a blessing at the end of the day is because their mission isn't the same as firefighters. They're, they often are called to determine if there was a crime. Yeah. And so their assessment just in their brain, their training, I imagine would be quite different. I'm a doctor. I want to understand what's happening so I can address the situation. I don't want anyone to get hurt, but I don't have to, there's, I don't have to press charges later, right? I don't have to answer to the DA as to whether a crime took place and fire, I'm guessing, doesn't either. Is that correct? Correct. And, and a big point is that they may be able to rem- try to remove some of your rights and they t- may take you somewhere involuntary. Mm-hmm. We are voluntary based. So really, you can't take someone off the scene without essentially like the only people who can do that is police. Correct. Correct. And that's actually very different from physicians because I have some of the most remarkable ability to take away people's rights, which actually, frankly, makes me very uncomfortable. And why I stopped doing that kind of work, because I thought it got in the way of me being able to be the most helpful in, in the ability on a state-by-state basis. But New York, you see a doctor in the emergency room, you can be locked up against your will for up to 75 days, 15 on an emergency admission, 60 days on a two-physician certification, which has four signatures on it. But if enough people say... You're going to the hospital, you're going to the hospital and you have the right to petition to get out. But at least in this state, it's going to be a while before you see a judge. Yeah. 
And it doesn't mean we can give you medication against your will, or at least not oral medication. You, you have the right to refuse that still, and, and good, because I believe people have rights. But someone who can take away your rights and someone who can't is just a different game. Well, and speaking of games, we'll play the good cop, bad cop. So with police there acting, standing up with their arms crossed, mm -hmm. we will be that one, like you mentioned, sitting next to them. Hey, do you need a bandage? Do you need a blanket? And all of a sudden we become the good ones, so the good <laughs> that they will start to listen to us because they know they don't want to go with them. Yeah. But if they said that I said, actually, we could take you and get you on a stretch, a warm bed and you can get out of the cold for the night at the you know, mm -hmm. emergency room or wherever we can take you. And they will side with us, which police understand that also. I can imagine they don't want that person in a correctional setting. No. Like it's not safe for them. It's not safe for the person. Like it sounds better to get the right. The only voluntariness seems to be a better plan. Yes, voluntary is. And, and if you can phrase your questions to have it seem like their idea, <laughs> you can offer suggestions, mm -hmm. but they, you give them a choice. Mm -hmm. That is, I think, the number one thing. It is humans, we, we want some kind of, they're feeling out of control right now and to be restrained and who knows what they're seeing and to have some empathy. And that's what we have to really have our, our members understand what is going on in their mind and have some empathy to where they're they're running from something and, and something is bothering them so much in their stress that you can offer them some ideas, but let them choose. And you can steer it that way where you eventually know that maybe it's best for them tonight. But boy, I, I listen to them, never correct them. If they believe that a demon is chasing them, don't argue with that. Just you can say because things for them. It's true. Yeah. See, you can definitely say we tell our folks that you can say that must be hard. That must be hard. Do you what would you like? Can I do this? What would you like to do? And so just just basically you're not denying them or you're not just. Yeah, I saw a demon once. No, you're just I've got a riff for you. You tell me if you like it. OK, so I take it must be hard, and I do a little bit of modification from my training in mentalization-based treatment, which is now in 400 teams across the UK and many more across Australia, a few here, but, and, and they work with hard to reach, hard to teach individuals, right? They're working with teams and systems that are disintegrated, but the riff is this. It seems like that might be hard for you. It'd be hard for me, but I don't know. Tell me about the demon. <laughs> And so instead of that must be hard for you, which could, because if you're wrong when you make an assertion like that, no, it's not hard. This is my demon friend. Putting a question, actually just say it now. I say question mark. And, and when I say something definitely like that must be hard for you, actually that might be hard, must be hard for you, question mark. I imagine it is. What's the story? And it's the question mark that is the kind of spoonful of sugar that helps any comment go down a little easier because look i don't know which it turns out is true i'm writing that down that's very good Sometimes i did write an entire book on the topic everything that we're talking about i i do believe we have a, a lane and we can only be so good at straddling both lines of being emergent and transactional to be able to handle acute problems and when you have a chronic need 
I, I believe we do need de-escalation skills and we need to understand the empathy and body positioning. But this is exactly why I think you shared in the article, we have hired, the fire department has hired social workers and nurses mm-hmm. who 100%, this is their lane and they're good at this, but they're under the 911 umbrella. Mm-hmm. And so, they- so part of part of the thing there, like I imagine nurses are actually maybe a little better than social workers because the training at the end of the day, for any of us matters. And the understanding we bring to the compassion and de-escalation, I'm, again, I'm a physician, which is different from being a social worker, different from being a psychologist, different from being an internal medicine doctor, different from being a nurse, and different from being a firefighter. But the thing that that strikes me is that we are often deploying essentially pseudo-medical folks in what is a behavioral health crisis or assumed to be. And I'm wondering if you see a difference in how nurses approach it versus how social workers approach it. And if that's any different, because frankly, the people I've seen who are anyone who gets enough experience will be good at a thing. But nurses will think about all the medical reasons that you're having a problem, even in some cases better than physicians, because they're at the bedside with people in their training when their heart could be racing. And social workers are just not trained in the same way to deal with sinus tack <laughs> or whatever. And when I say sinus tack for our audience, it's sinus tachycardia. That's your heart rate going too fast because there's a specific node in your heart. To, and that can be experienced as panic, but there's a physiological reason. And for people in a real crisis, I'm wondering how much physiological thinking maybe is brought by the MTs already or the like, and you're just sharing that information as a team, question mark, like how much physiology, how much psychology, what's the admixture that helps you in the moment, but in the moment is thinking about biology part of the response. I love your brain because that's exactly it. And we're one of the few in the nation that has the combination of a registered nurse and a social worker. Yes, and them both. They're, they're a team. Amazing. So really, most people will send, you'll see those, their mm-hmm. co-responder, they send their forward thinking with the social worker, or they'll have community health reps. But boy, you're the only one, Owen, I'm going to give this to you, that understands what a nurse can do, what's going on the biological side to help with that. Some so, of the most important professionals in the world, and I think highly underrated. Wonderful. And they do understand that. So watching them work in tandem, and I'd love to have you ride along with them one day during a shift, but to watch them work together. Mm -hmm. um, And the nurse takes that real holistic look, that full body, because some of these patients have very complex needs. If they have been living on the street due to a mental health need, they may be a diabetic. They may have untreated wounds. They may be septic. They have a lot of complex needs that Maybe it's a UTI, and now this is why they're acting this way. There's a lot of reasons. So the combination is is very important. I got a call from a friend last night, and I don't think he'll mind me saying it. He told me about dealing with his dad, who has has some dementia, and his mother-in-law, who has some dementia. And I sent him the ad from the 1950s for Thorazine. One of the original ads for Thorazine was, For the agitated belligerent senile. And their day and night pacing and restlessness, 
Thorazine therapy can help the senile attain a composed and useful life and cease the day and night outbursts and nerve jangling screaming. <laughs> it's actually ad copy written either by or by the ad firm that Arthur Sackler created. A lot of the advertising around medicines in America is actually due to that one man's brilliance and but Arthur was a psychiatrist and he worked at Creedmoor, which is right down the street from where I trained. But he worked his way through medical school writing ad copy. Part of anyone having a hard time is often there's more than one reason and why they're having a hard time now as opposed to earlier in the day or last week. That's the question. And often there's biology. Are they hungry, right? Yeah. Are they tired? Have they not slept? Why now? And there's yeah. usually, for someone with a chronic problem, like you said, often why now there's some biology behind it. And so the fact that you do it as a team makes all the sense to me. And, and so we have a, a doctor that oversees our nurses and nurses can speak doctor. Yeah. There's that exactly. tie-in that you can have that a social worker does not have. And so to, to get that holistic look, to truly care for people, the combination in my eyes, and it's just not... I'm having, a, I'm, I'm having a hard time getting others to do this because they do want to just throw mm -hmm. social work and community health folks at it. And I, I understand that, but I want them to appreciate that dynamic. And it's a trust. And it's like you wouldn't want a firefighter who didn't know the language of fighting fires. Even if it was a full-fledged firefighter, if you were taught using in German. When I did my mentalization training for teams in, in the UK, I actually did it with another team who most of whom only spoke German. Wow. Which it turned out was awesome because the assumption that we usually make that we're all speaking the same language couldn't be made, which was the point of the training. It was just don't assume you're speaking the same language at the end of the day. And how do we reach an understanding when we're not sure that we have that understanding, which literally not speaking the same language helps. And that's... That thinking about it that way makes perfect sense to me. Like social workers don't speak doctor, maybe the easiest way to explain it. And and this is the the importance to understand for the well-being of the first responders. If we want people to have empathy, to not go into what we call compassion fatigue, where they lose that empathy because you're seeing the same people over and over. It's akin to fighting the same house that keeps catching on fire every third day. Pretty exciting the first time, but after a while, we call it a rekindle, and it's one of the worst things. And it mm. feels like a job you're on a treadmill in a job that we feel like we can help tie it with a bow, send them to the hospital, and go to the next person that's in an emergency or go put out the next fire. Mm -hmm. We like to finish one job. Again, that's that transactional. So having the nurse and social worker, we call it like a CARES team, mm -hmm. under the umbrella of the fire service not only better serves the community and the people in, that have needs in the community, but it's internal. It helps our firefighters be in the lane that they wanted to be, that they're trained and prepared to be. I was talking to a good friend earlier today about trauma. He's a trauma therapist and I actually really want the two of you to meet because he's just a remarkable person, but get, gets it in a way that few other people do. And, and his point that, that he discussed with me, and I want to run this by you, is there, there's capital T trauma and, and he defined that for me quite helpfully, which is there are some traumatic experiences, which for some people you will re-experience in flashback format 
something so jarring that our nervous system makes sure we remember it perfectly and represents it to us whether we want to or not. And that's a feature for humans. It may cause impairment, but we're built to be able to re-experience because we need to avoid things that could kill us. And that's different from something that's traumatizing and maybe to people traumatic, but not getting to re-experiencing something that generates mistrust in your experience. There are plenty of things that are bad and awful and traumatizing that don't lead to flashbacks or crystalline moments jumping out at you. And those are different because you learn to not trust your experience. And importantly, what I think a lot of people get wrong is that for people who are mistrustful, they're not wrong about their experience. And what struck me about how you described coming up to people, and we spoke a lot about what for the audience is psychosis, right? People are having internal experiences that are not necessarily what someone else would notice. There's no demon there probably, but to them there is. And there are also people who maybe as first responders who are seeing someone who's struggling again and seems to not be able to take the help. And they're not wrong that the person doesn't trust you. But I would also question how much mistrust in our ability to be helpful is getting in the way of our ability to be meaningfully helpful. The thing that's become interesting, so it's a good question for you, is that sometimes in a movie, there's a, a thing called a red herring. The one that's just, okay, this is what it should be. Hey, we have a mental health problem. The thing that's very interesting that I want people to understand is, and I'm trying to understand it myself, why it comes out in certain times in our lives when we're impacted by other things. It could be going through a divorce. It could be financial struggles. It could be an injury that now, because of the pain, they've gone down a dark road of either alcohol or pain management issues. And then everything starts bubbling out that they were making space for. And now they have not just a back injury and an addiction to pain meds, but now they have PTSI from everything they saw. I'm appreciating that more and more. It's not just from a call that we've seen. It's a lot of times it's from what we've packed down and we haven't connected to it. We thought we made space for, but it bubbles back up. I think that the PTSI, PTSD thing may actually be useful here. Um, Eugene Lipoff is really a, a proponent of post-traumatic stress injury. And when Bessel van der Kolk describes, you're represented with an experience as if it was happening now. Like post-traumatic stress injury looks like that. The disorder that comes with that for people, and people do not like the term disorder, but there is also acquired mistrust in social information, which becomes a problem. I don't know if disorder is the right word for problem. It could be a sports injury. Mm -hmm. You could wreck your knee and you get hit really hard in any football game in just the right angle and you're going to lose your ACL. You get hit hard enough in pulling some out of a fire and you're going to have re-experiencing. When that goes from being an injury to something that causes ongoing dysfunction in your life, it's probably because, as you said, there's a bunch of other stuff going on that takes the ability to be more resilient and to say, yeah, that was a re-experience. <laughs> there are people who are, 5% of people will have auditory hallucinations in their life. It's really common. Now, most of them are not being picked up by your team. Wow. A lot, of, I've had flashbacks from traumas I've had. And 100% of doctors, I would argue, are exposed to capital T 
death and dying in front of them. Someone's going to die under your hands. The training of being a doctor, being an EMT, you're running codes. People are going to die. That's the kind of thing that might jump out at you or might not. When your resilience and support comes down, there's a model I'm going to throw at you and you tell me what you think of this for, for when it becomes a problem for someone. This is from Dr. Joyner. It's the interpersonal model of suicide. So you're going to notice there's no disorder here. And they understand it as a testable hypothesis, as plausibly the risk for death by suicide, which many people with trauma are at higher risk for, comes from the overlap of perceived burdensomeness, capability, and thwarted belongingness. Belongingness. And it's feeling like you don't belong, feeling like you're a burden, and being able to do the thing that lets people end up dead. And fortunately or unfortunately, first responders often have military backgrounds. They often are veterans. They've often, in the work they're doing, even if they weren't that way, they are capable. They have faced fear before. They will do it again. They do it every day. And so being able to face fear like that takes away a major barrier to death by suicide, which is being too scared to do it. Now. The only thing that holds you up, of course, then is the major stuff, which is feeling like you belong and feeling like you're not a burden. And so I'm wondering when you hear that, and there's no disorder anywhere there, we talked about a bad outcome, death by suicide, but there's no disorder. And I'm wondering how that strikes you as someone who's been in this line of work. No, actually that, that does make sense. And that goes into a person that entered their back on duty and now is off for months and they're not getting better, they're understanding, maybe they can't feel like they're helping around home if they have a family, not sure they can go back to the job they love. They don't feel purpose, that sense of value, that sense of belonging. Right. Firefighters are very tribal. The back, um, it was not the real injury. It's the taking away of the being able to help. Exactly. So that rings true, Owen. That's very true. I, I wonder if we were thinking together about the first responders and how to be helpful to them, what is the eye level lean in for someone on your team, right? If we know, we don't know with someone on the street. And so I guess I'm getting at like how much of how we approach first responders, you know, is the trust you have between each other and how much might that get in the way because you'll assume you know what the problem is. We are built on a culture of trust and trust takes time to build and you can lose it in, in a second. So we are definitely a culture of trust, but I'm encouraged. People see we have a youth movement in the fire service, probably some of the highest numbers and ratios. But the one thing that I would love people's help with is that we still lean on when we have a firefighter that is in crisis, and I'd like to talk more about resiliency, but if we have somebody that is in crisis, we still offer them talk therapy. And I loved- I got a gift for you. I love how we're exploring now TMS. I think TMS is amazing. If we could get those in fire stations, just little massages to our brain on just adjusting, whether it's ketamine, psychedelics, SGB, there's help out there organizational leaders in the fire service to understand that you invest in your people, not just at work. And that was the old thinking that we build you nice fire stations, fire engines, equipment, and that's all our responsibility. But now we're investing in 
how they're doing outside of work so they're prepared to come in. And if that investment to say you will have an engaged employee that will be back to work faster. The idea is you only want to be on edge enough, right? You want you stress. You want to be ready to act, but not so fearful that your biology takes over and makes you paralyzed or frantic or something. And the source of that coordination is your brain. It's your body too, but it's a conversation between them. So like ganglia block does a great job of changing that equation at the level of the neck. Mm. Similarly, TMS does a great job at the level of the brain. We have now a vagal nerve simulator we're deploying both here in New York and Acacia called the gamma core device, which is originally a headache treatment, but seems to be great for anxiety. Wow. The Monarch device, which you sleep with for ADHD, and we have a pediatric approval, not yet adult, but it's an attention CPAP. Like you sleep with it on <laughs> and you have better attention because it's jacking into your brain circuit. I use it every night now. And so none of those things are things you have to talk about. <laughs> which isn't to say talking isn't useful in some contexts for some people, but the thought that you're going to uselessly talk about it is something that makes people feel hopeless. I heard it from one of our members in crisis that was pleading, just give me something. It wasn't, they didn't want medications to cycle on and cycle off. They mm -hmm. just give me something and to- Make it work. To, yes. Just, they wanted out of that vicious cycle that kept going. Just give me, get, break the cycle. Yeah. What they're in right now is not sustainable. It's, and it's a little bit like if you had been fighting fires for years, but only gasoline was in your fire hose, you'd feel pretty shitty about being a firefighter too. That's a great analogy. And I would argue that's maybe what we're doing sometimes with psychiatric problems. Maybe we've got water in there, but nobody tells us in advance. And we don't have any faith or trust that it's going to go well. And so I would avoid help too. And so you can see the compounding effects when they're off duty that they are suffering PTSD, PTSD on relationships, they sleep, got problems, nutrition, and it's, it all starts to spiral into this giant hot soup. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you're not, you're going to lose them. You're, you're going to lose them. Oh, at worst, everyone loses them. Yeah. And that means literally everyone because firefighters are saving all of our lives. As a society, we have to get right with God about the fact that there are people we need to be in the best possible shape because we need them. Yeah. Rescuing the rescuers. Yeah. Or preventing them from needing rescuing by doing the right thing now, not waiting till they need to be rescued. Yeah. And so that's the shift that we've done. If you've heard of peer support, but traditionally they've been in crisis responders and doing a mm -hmm. horrible job at mm -hmm. it. You can only be trained so much in helping out. But on the other hand, instead of being a lifeguard, we're teaching them to be a swim instructor. Instead of trying to rescue a drowning person, let's model resiliency, proper well-being to be that swim instructor, teaching mm -hmm. people to swim. Because since this is a culture of trust, the new young people look to the older ones saying, how do I handle this call that I just saw? How do I go home and, and just somehow mentally decontaminate myself so I don't bring it home and I can actually clean myself and model this behavior? I would love to not have to, the need for so many culturally competent therapists. Everyone keeps asking more therapy, more therapy. Really? Mm -hmm. Can we stream mm -hmm. and model healthy behavior?
and, and give people back the underlying biology to be able to see a model of healthy behavior and then maybe do it. Because uh, the disability from depression, so you know, it's the equivalent of having an acute heart attack right now. So when someone is severely depressed, they are as disabled as someone who's having an active heart attack. Wow. But it goes on for years. We, we respond to a heart attack like it's an emergency, because it is. We also have interventions that we've refined over years to save someone's life. You have a defibrillator, even in the 60s in King County. And now that we have that for depression and getting that word out and for trauma and for OCD, I think getting people to see that the cycle could be broken is really what is compelling to me. And I'm curious, having heard that, what your take is. I would like to see things like TMS actually offered more as, a, as just more availability. Yeah. Because that is one thing I've listened to our people and they've forgotten to laugh, to smile. The joy of coming to work is gone. That mm -hmm. connection, that rhythm, that in sync with the brain. Mm -hmm. And so living in an area that no amount of time off is, it actually gets worse when they go home. Right. Sometimes we see a person struggling. We say, oh, just get out of here. Go home. They're going by themselves and they, their tribe. And where's and, the purpose? Where's yeah. the connection? Where's the belongingness? Yeah. You it's, just thwarted uh, it. What control what we can control. I can't control the new needs of the community and what comes in through 911. You can't control that. It's like putting the toothpaste back in. But can control how do we build resiliency? What, what can we offer people for that balance, that well-being on duty and off duty? And so I'd love to see, I'd love to see more TMS. I'd love to see more actual treatment instead of the stall of just hoping that a pharmaceutical will bring them around. To yeah. Thank you for having this conversation. It, I always love talking to you, but I always learn something new every time. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Owen Scott Muir, MD, and this is the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast, the companion publication to the thefrontierpsychiatrist.substack.com. Subscribe and rate this as five stars because it helps discovery on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you happen to be listening. Have a great one.